Welcome to Season 2 of The Life and Times of the Osborne Man. I am your host, Holly Hazard. In Season 2, we'll explore, along with John Briggs and his family, the ups and downs of life in rural upstate New York in 1921. We've been following the life of John Adronian Briggs and his wife Susan through the early years of their marriage and the births of their four children, Marion, Betty, Frank, and Louise. During the first decade of the 20th century, the family moves from Earlville to Binghamton to Cooperstown, New York, and then back to Earlville. John starts his career as the publisher of the Earlville Standard with Susan helping, and then sells his interest and becomes an Osborne man, a traveling salesman from the Osborne Art Calendar Company. You can find out more about this company on my website, theosborneman.com. John briefly changes careers in 1911 when he quits the Osborne Company to become a partner in a feed and grain shop in Cooperstown, New York. He's relieved to be off the road and able to eat dinner each night with his family. However, this bliss doesn't last long. His partner turns out to be a crook, and John then sells his interest back, and in 1912, he's back on the road selling calendars and greeting cards to small retail businesses all over New York State and northern Pennsylvania, once again for the Osborne Company. The children, meanwhile, are growing up during this decade with Marion, born in 1898, going to college at Syracuse University, and then off to become a school teacher in Millville, New Jersey. Betty is still in college at Syracuse University, and Frank and Louise are still home in high school. As I've mentioned before, in 1921, there's a mini-recession going on throughout the country. However, John doesn't seem to be aware of it and continues to believe that his unremarkable sales are something of a personal failure rather than an indication of a dip in the U.S. economy. In this coming season, Marion's life and letters become more prominent as she returns to Millville to teach for a second year despite her misgivings and her complete disgust for the people, culture, and traditions of Millville, New Jersey. I do know that good things are coming for Marion in her personal life in 1922 and 1923. However, obviously, she doesn't know that yet. In this first episode, our narrator, Mike Sternad, will read from two letters. The first is an out-of-place letter. It was tucked in with his correspondence from 1921, but it's actually from the summer of 1920. It's an interesting letter because John is describing a wild storm in upstate New York that appears to be a tornado, although he never references it as such. I checked the New York Times and a couple of other papers and Googled for any information on a tornado during 1921, but I found uh, nothing. The second letter is interesting because John appears to go a bit rogue, by driving into a barn for cover one cold night in which he cannot find a hotel. And then, when sleeping in his car got too bitterly cold, he drove to a town and a hotel at 1 a.m. He found no one at the desk, so he searched the hotel for an empty room and simply went to bed in it. I found his behavior that night to be uncharacteristic of the rather conservative and risk-avoiding law-respecting man that I knew to be my great-grandfather. I think it makes him a bit more charming. It also may be a sign of some very different cultural expectations. And now, Mike Sternad will read one letter in July of 1920 and then another from June 8, 1921. The Central Hotel, Henry Whitbeck, Proprietor, Cherry Valley, New York. June 8, 1921, 8.30 a.m. My Sweetheart, 
It did seem good to hear your cheery voice over the phone last yesterday. I was lonesome for you. Cruel business that takes me away from you so much of the time. I had quite a thrilling experience yesterday. After phoning you, I changed my plan. I got one order early yesterday at Leonardville for $66. I went to Portlandville and called on Mr. Dahoney, the Ford dealer, who lost so much money. Didn't buy. He took me into his home and showed me their first child, a sweet little baby girl, eight weeks old. Mrs. Dahoney is 42, and this is their first baby after a marriage of 17 years. I got into Milford in time for supper at after 7 o'clock, sold three orders of $23, $92, and $50. I left at about 11.30 for Cherry Valley. I got to a little town where there was a hotel and tried to stay there, but couldn't, so drove car into a barn thinking I could sleep in the car. It was too cold, and so... After about an hour, I pulled out for this burg, and got here about one thirty. found a door open, and sneaked upstairs and found a vacant room, and crawled in for the night. It's too cold to sleep outside. It will please me to have you get better phone for Frank, if you think best. I'm anxious for him to make this year's schoolwork. It's late, and I must get busy. Will not get to Cobleskill before eight in the morning. Love for each, John. Hotel Facet, EFG Proprietor, All Modern Improvements, Wellsville, New York, July 24, 1920, 8 p.m. My darling, I reached this town at about six o'clock tonight and according to plan, we'll spend Sunday here. Before supper, I inquired for mail and was handed two letters from the company, but not one from you. Hope one will come in tomorrow, but if I don't hear from you, I shall know that you love me just the same. The week has been one of disappointments, but I am not complaining in the least. I have had bad weeks in the past, and am bound to have them in the future. They make up the year's work. I have just one order today for $24.85 for blotters. The little towns I have worked this week had been pretty well taken care of by some of my friends. Will not make again some of the towns I made this week. Wonder if you had a storm last night. I was through my work at Troopsburg, a little island town, at about seven o'clock, and as it began to thunder and lightning, something frightful, I thought it would not be a bad idea to stay the night there. Well, I'm glad I did. About eight, it began to pour, and it kept it up until one o'clock. An awful downpour, with some hail and plenty of wind, but not any damage was done right here. When I got to Greenwood, you should have seen the trees that were blown down. Just before getting to Andover, I came to a farm where the roof of a barn was blown off, roof from wing of house off, and a large apple orchard just across from the home was completely uprooted.
and beautiful maples along the road all blown down. Andover is a town about the size of Earlville, and I can't describe the conditions of this town. There's hardly a shade tree in the whole town left intact. Houses and stores unroofed, glass broken, and all things upset. The village had a beautiful maple grove of about 15 acres, and there is hardly a tree left standing. I made a side trip between Andover and this town of about three miles to see some sights. One place, there were two sets of farm buildings where both houses and every barn was completely wrecked. In one of the houses, a man of about 36 was killed. Pieces of the house and furniture were blown out in a piece of woods a hundred rods distance. I picked up and closed postal card about a thousand feet from the house, and near it was a suitcase and pieces of furniture. You simply can't believe what you see. Hardwood planks sixteen feet long were carried up into a lot more than a thousand feet from the side of the business. In that section, there are 28 farms where scarcely a building remains. You simply can't describe it and can scarcely believe what you really see and know it to be true. A stream of cars are going to the scene. I don't believe a storm like it has ever occurred in the state. Hope to get a letter tomorrow. I'll be mighty lonesome and have been about homesick all the week. Love from John. This week, John was narrated by Mike Sternad. Next week, we'll hear from Marion again as she talks about her life in Millville, New Jersey. Please join us. This podcast was produced by Holly Hazard. Music is provided by Escalante Music from Pond 5. Thank you for listening. <laughs>